It's been about um, a year since I've shared any time with, with Brother Neil, who's my earthly father, not my brother, uh, but my earthly father, uh, who I also consider a father in the ministry. You know, I don't think we were pitch-hitting for Ricky Harcrow last time we shared time, uh, but it's a pleasure to be here with him. And I, I think that message was infused with a sense of practicality and applicability that we need in the church. Amen. Uh, we need to know how to live uh, in the church. Um, and you know, I, I wanted him to continue, but also I wanted him to sit down because I was afraid he was going to take my primary text. <laughs> so I, I'm thankful that he finished when he did and didn't continue developing his thoughts. I want to read about a time where Jesus goes into the wilderness for a different purpose in a different time in John chapter 6, we read that after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed Him because they saw His miracles which He did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there He sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him. For he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus has crossed over the Sea of Galilee. He's ascended up into a mountain and he's sitting there with his disciples. And somehow this great company knows exactly where Jesus would be found. I don't know how far off they were. But understand that Scripture seems to indicate that Jesus is sitting up in the top of this mountain and He looks out down beneath Him and He sees a great multitude coming to where He is. And He looks up and what does He say? He says, disciples, where will we find bread that all of these people may eat? He realizes that these people have left behind the fanfare of Jerusalem. They've left behind the tradition and feast of the Passover and they have come out into the wilderness where there is no sustenance and there is no food seeking out His presence as the Son of God. Do you not think that these people knew who this man was? Going about healing, miraculously performing works could only be explained by who He Himself was amongst the people of that time, and they come out into a desolate place expecting something that the feast of the Passover, that the fanfare of Jerusalem, that the traditions of men, that the shadow of the law could not convey, teach, or illustrate to them. So they go to someone who can, and that man is Jesus Christ. And they're passing through the land and their eyes are fixed upon the place where they know Jesus Christ is, this mountaintop. I don't know how they knew He was there. I don't know how they knew where they would find Him, but yet they knew. 
They knew that He was there in the mountaintop. And they go seeking after Him into this desolate place. That's an attitude that characterizes many of the saints of faith that we read about in Scripture. That they had the faith, they had the foresight, they had the spiritual wisdom to look out into a desolate place devoid of nutrition, of nourishment, of earthly food, and realize that out there in that desolate place on top of the mountain, they would find a man who could feed them. Jesus Christ knew that He could feed them, did He not? He asked the disciples, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed this great multitude of people that's come out to be with me in the mountaintop? His disciples weren't quite sure, were they? Jesus Christ Himself knew. And we'll go on to read in this particular account that Jesus takes the minimal food that they had available at that time and He multiplies it by some miraculous miracle to the extent that it feeds this great multitude that has come out to be with Him in the wilderness. And further still, in fact, there's 12, ba- there's 12 baskets of this, of this sustenance left over that Jesus Christ provides. This food from above. There's 12 baskets <coughs> left over. And you say, brother, what does that mean? Well, praise God, you've just heard a fantastic message about what it means. And I'll re-articulate it to you again and say that Jesus has the ability to provide food and sustenance that delivers us from the anguished hunger of this life, the pain of what it means to be human, the pain and anguish of what it means to live in a broken world where people die and they're diagnosed with cancer and we suffer and we sorrow. He has the power to deliver us from that with what He provides. And it's not a bread, it's not a food, it's not a sustenance that you can explain by opening a recipe book or reflecting upon the conniving arts of the devil that that seek to waylay us as, as we wander through the wilderness. You know, the Israelites, when they were delivered from Egypt, they knew where they were headed, did they not? They were fixed upon the destination that the Lord had told them about. It was the land of milk and honey, The land of promise. They understand where they're going. They've never seen that land. They've never felt its soil run through their fingers. They've never been there. But yet somehow they visualize by faith this place that the Lord has provided for them and they set off through the wilderness to try to gain access to that place. It was a long meandering road for that group of people, was it not? They're waylaid by enemies. They're led astray by their own lusts. I believe they made an idol out of their jewelry at one point to explain why they had been delivered from Egypt. And they're, they're tossed to and fro just in all of these miraculous and, and unbelievable complex circumstances as a consequence of their own stubbornness and sin on their way to that land that the Lord has promised them. I hope we understand this morning, especially after the message that we just heard, that we are in that situation. That our eyes, our hope by faith, are fixed upon a person 
Our forerunner Jesus Christ who manifested Himself in the flesh as the perfect Son of God and experienced the sufferings that we do in perfection. And He has gone on before us and He has told us clearly, I have prepared a place where you will join Me. An eternal celebration of what I've done. We are caught in that circumstance. You know, there's an account of the Ethiopian eunuch that travels to the land of Israel to to the place where the temple was to experience God, to experience worship as it was experienced at that point in time. And we we read of of an account where Philip encounters this Ethiopian eunuch on on his return from his travels and he's reading a manuscript which speaks of the slain lamb. The lamb who is slain for the sins of God's people. And he's traveled all the way to Israel. He's mingled with the people of God at that time. He's experienced the worship of that time. And he still doesn't understand what he's reading. That's because he realized the land of Israel, the temple, the place of worship was something much greater than just the traditions of a small, insignificant group of people. They were worshiping a God that he understood by faith. He couldn't even tell you the details of who that God was, how He had communicated Himself to God's people, and even more miraculously, how He had saved them from their sins. Yet He travels to a far country to experience this worship. And it's an attitude that we see throughout all of Scripture. You know, this morning thinking of a specific circumstance in Hebrews the 11th chapter where a man named Abel looks beyond his his current circumstances, looks beyond the time in which he lived and and, and visualized and, and saw by faith. I'm going to claim to you this morning, God, He offers a sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11 and we're told that by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and he being dead yet speaketh. Remember the circumstances that surrounded the death of Abel. Abel and Cain are uh, two of the sons of Adam and Eve. And there comes a time when Abel, uh, who is a keeper of sheep, and Cain, who is a tiller of the ground, go before the Lord and offer their respective sacrifices. Cain offers of the fruit of his hands, of the fruit of the ground. And Abel offers unto God a firstling of his flock. And through whatever divine means were necessary, those aren't clearly specified in the passage, God communicates to both Cain and Abel that he has respect to Abel's offering and he does not have respect to Cain's. And the clearest indication of that respect that God indicated toward Abel's offering is clearly explained to us in Hebrews chapter 11. Abel offered that sacrifice in faith. Now there are other reasons that we can discuss in Scripture that the Lord had respect 
unto Abel's offering and not unto Cain's. I'd love to talk up to you and, and with you about those later. For the sake of time, we won't address them now. But for the, in the context of Hebrews chapter 11, the Lord says, Abel offers his sacrifice in faith, and by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, because God testified of his gifts. I, you, we can debate how God testified of Abel's gifts. One way that he testified of Abel's gifts is here in Hebrews chapter 11. Because thousands of years after Abel is killed in wrath by Cain, his brother, we are still reading about Abel's example. And Abel was not an individual that was so caught up in the devices and the distractions of the wilderness that he couldn't offer a sacrifice in faith. I assure you today we are still offering sacrifices in faith. We are still offering our lives as sacrifices to God in faith. Our brother last night referenced Romans chapter 12. That's an explicit example of how we come to God in worship, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. Abel embodies that mentality for us in Hebrews chapter 11. He takes the best that he has, not some one-eyed, three-legged part of his flock that he doesn't really care, care that much about. He goes out to his flock, to his livelihood, to the way that he sustains himself and any family that he possibly had. He takes the best that he has and he offers it to the Lord. And the Lord honors that sacrifice. One of the other commands of Paul in Romans chapter 12 is that we be not conformed to this world, but that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In order for Abel to make the sacrifice that he did, he had to think a little bit differently than the people around him. He had to approach his sacrifices a little bit differently than the rest of the world did. The rest of the world is tending for the firstlings of their flock. To continue to use Abel's analogy. They're coddling the best that they have. They're going out and they're brushing that sheep each day. They're raising it with a bottle. They're thinking far differently about the possessions that they've been given. The blessings that have been placed in their lives by God. And Abel goes out and what does he do? He takes a knife to the firstling of his flock or he sacrifices in some way. We're not told how he offered that sacrifice, but he relinquishes that possession to God. He gives that up before God. How? In faith. That's not an attitude that would have been communicated to him by the rational faculties of his mind. That's not a mentality that the rest of the world would have embodied. He had to make that sacrifice in faith. I assure you today, as we assemble in worship in the house of God this morning, we are making a sacrifice in faith. Because we have come together to, to worship a God that we can't see. Have you ever thought about that? We're not gathered together to watch a football game. We're not gathered together to celebrate the, the Olympics or the Super Bowl that's coming up. We're not gathered together for one of those secular reasons. We are gathered together to worship a God that we cannot see. That is why we must have faith as gifted by God to approach God and believe on Him. That's why we must have faith as delivered to us through the new birth by the sovereign act of God to approach Him and worship. 
We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of him that diligently seek Him. I pray that we believe that in faith this morning. That we believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. You know, we can speak of the science of this world. We can speak of the, the traditions of philosophy and intellectualism which has spanned human history. But the primary way, the most consistent way that we believe that God is, is by faith. I assure you, we are now in a time, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I hope, but we are now in a time where you're facing a world that often claims that God is not. That God is not existent. He's not present in our lives. Science disavows His existence. The most powerful people of this world disavow His existence. I'm here to tell you today that in the tradition of Abel, in the tradition of those that have fixed their eyes upon Jesus Christ and wandered through the wilderness, we don't need the approval of the President of the United States. We don't need the scientists of the Ivy League universities of America to fully embrace our belief in God as Creator. That is a belief that we can hold fast to by faith. I pray that we believe that this morning. You know, we're told that the sacrifice of Abel spoke of greater things than the blood which he offered. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. So, brother, how, did, how would Abel have known? How would he have offered the sacrifice that symbolized and spoke of something greater than just a lamb? Than just a firstling of his flock? Than just a sheep? Than just a creature of God? It's by faith. Abel understood that by faith. I don't know if he could have articulated that to you or not. I don't know if he could explain that to you or not. I think on the authority of the Word of God, we can assert that he probably couldn't. He didn't have the Gospel as revealed to us here in this time. But yet, his sacrifice spoke of something greater. It spoke of God. It spoke of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for the sins of God's elect people. It wasn't just a lamb. It spoke of something far greater. You know, and we still, we still do that in the church today. We still do that in the church today. We still offer sacrifices of time, of energy, of dedication, of spiritual gifts. Not according to the traditions of this world. Not according to the traditions of this world. I claim to you today that when Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 that we're to cast our bread upon the waters for we'll find it again after many days. That's a type of sacrifice that we make in faith. You take what you have and you throw it out upon the waters and you trust in faith that God will bless it. Is that the prosperity gospel? No. That's the way that we live in a broken, sin-cursed world. You know, and I assure you today, when the Lord promises Paul in Galatians chapter 6, that in due season he would reap if he fainted not. Again, that's not a prosperity gospel. When he promised Paul that he would reap, I assure you today, there may be a time when some of us lie on our deathbeds 
And we look back upon lives spent investing and nurturing the kingdom of God and we think, my time on earth has been spent fruitlessly. You say, brother, that's so discouraging. How could you say that? I claim to you that some of our hymns embody that attitude because it's an attitude that we often feel. We wonder, what if the work that I'm doing is meaningless? What if the time that I'm spending nurturing God's kingdom is not having an effect on the people around me? What if the ways that I'm spending my time aren't having an effect? We often feel that way, do we not? I know I do. Be it I assure you today, there's going to come a time when our spirit leaves our body and it flees to heaven. We're not worried or concerned with the fruit that our sacrifices bore. I assure you today, Abel celebrating in the presence of God is not looking back on the firstlings of his flock that he sacrificed to God, bemoaning that sacrifice. That sacrifice, that dedication, that toil is swallowed in the face of glory. And you say, brother, I'm not sure if I really understand that. I'm not sure if I can wrap my mind around that. It's a phrase we use often. Believe it by faith this morning. Believe Believe by faith that the toil... And seemingly to our small little minds, it's just ineffective and meaningless will one day be swallowed in glory. You know, for now, I'm interested in celebrating in the kingdom of God with you all. I'm interested in celebrating the fruits of sacrifice, the fruits of dutiful labor to God that He often graciously dispenses to us here in time. I'm not going to promise you that, that in our minds we're going to receive, receive our bread back in return when we cast it out in the waters. I'm not going to promise you that if you commit money to the church, as many people are claiming today, that the Lord returns that tenfold. There are people in the world that will tell you that here today. But I am here to promise you that after all of this suffering in life is over, and we are celebrating in the presence of God, we're no longer going to be concerned about the sacrifices that we had to make during this time to celebrate in God's kingdom. I have 12 o'clock on my watch. I earnestly look forward to the time when we're not going to be gathered together battered and bruised and discouraged and worn down as we often do in the house of God. But I look forward to celebrating in the presence of our Savior with you sooner rather than later. And I hope we can, if we can't wrap our minds around that today, we, we do as Abel did, do our best to believe it by faith. Thank you for your kind attention. Amen.